Um, I was going to start this message with the Braveheart quote, Every man dies, but not every man truly lives. Come to find out, we're not really sure that William Wallace said that, and it was attributed to somebody else, so I'm not going to start with that, even though I just did. Um, But what I want to say from that is, every man dies, but not every man really dies. Okay, let me explain that. We're going to look at the death of Christ today, but I want to bring up a death of a probably somebody that most of us have heard of, maybe not everybody, a guy by the name of Pythagoras. Anybody heard of Pythagoras, the Pythagorean theorem, which sounds like I got a speech impediment when I say it? Now, this is according to historycollection.com. Pythagoras is a name that makes bored school children around the world forced to learn his theories about triangles groan. However, remembering him as the triangle man does the extensive and influential work of this great man a disservice. He was born on the Greek island of Samos, the son of a gem engraver or wealthy merchant, and he left that island around 530 B.C. either to escape the numerous responsibilities he had as an in-demand philosopher or because he disagreed with the tyranny of the ruler, Polycrates. On Samos, Pythagoras lived in a secret cave to study in silence and founded the, quote, semicircle school. The school was rather monastic in character, with members swearing an oath to Pythagoras and studying philosophy and religion communally. Pythagoras is also attributed with the discovery that the planets and stars move according to mathematical equations known as the harmony of the spheres. And let us remember his most famous contribution to mathematics, the square of the hypotenuse, the side opposite the right angle, equals the sum of the squares of the other two sides. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. There were understandably many who wished to join the Pythagorean Brotherhood and to study with such a brilliant man. However, in 495 B.C., he refused to allow Kylon, K-Y-L-O-N, a nobleman, he, he refused to let him enter his school. Kylon responded by rousing an angry mob, now get ready, which chased Pythagoras to a bean field. Ethically... Pythagoras refused to eat beans or even to crush them as he thought they resembled a human fetus. Thus, he refused to flee through the field lest he damage a single bean. The angry mob caught up with him, hesitating in contemplation of a single bean, and stabbed him to death. What a cruddy way to die. I'm not going to crush a bean, so they're going to catch me and kill me. And death is not something we really like to talk about, much less when a death like Pythagoras's. I mean, goodness gracious. But today, we're going to look at what may be the most famous death of all time. The death of Jesus Christ. And contemplate what that death means for us and what a death it is. And as phenomenal as the death is, its ramifications are even more glorious. So let's check it out. We're going to read Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 54. Would you please stand as we read the Word of God? 
And I don't know where you are in your belief spectrum, but we do need to understand that the God of the universe has spoken and we get to hear him speak through his word this morning. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place... They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, this is holy ground. As we look at, think about, and try to process and possibly personalize death of Jesus Christ, We rely completely upon your Holy Spirit to give light to the truths that are here contained. And we rely totally on your Holy Spirit to give us power to live out these truths in a way that shows your glory. We lean in on you. We trust you. We put our faith in you. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, initially, I was going to try, my initial passage here was going to be to finish this chapter. And I'm thinking, well, that's a lot of verses, but we can get through it. And it's kind of one one thought. But there is so much here in this passage today. And initially, I cut it down to 12 verses. And then I cut it down to these 10 verses because I just couldn't pass up the chance to dive a little deeper into these 10 specific verses. So that's what we'll do. And we left off last week, <clears throat> excuse me, with Jesus hanging on the cross and all the unbelievers mocking and ridiculing, ridiculing him, pointing out what they saw as his complete inability to save himself. The Romans, the chief priests, the thieves hanging on each side of him, the passers-by, all pointing out that Jesus was defeated and in that deathly defeat, He was disqualified in their minds from any chance of being the Messiah that he was accused of being. And so now we find ourselves on the back end of the process of Jesus' death. And we said last week that we know from Mark's gospel that Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. Mark 15, 25 says, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the Jewish day time started with 6 a.m. as the zero hour, basically. And then you marked hours from there. So three hours from 6 a.m. is 9 a.m. So they had crucified him, hung him on the cross at 9 a.m. Now, where are we today? Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So it's the sixth hour now, which translates to noon. 
It's noon on the last day of Jesus' life. He's hanging on the cross and has been there for three hours now. And what happens at noon? Well, what always happens at noon? It gets dark, right? That's not usually what happens at noon, right? As bright as the noonday sun, we say. Well, here at noon, it got dark. And I want to look at that phrase, there was darkness. There was is literally translated, it changed or became. There was a change from one thing to another. And the change was from light, noonday light, to darkness. And that word darkness in Greek is the word skatos, and it means darkness. (laughs) But the word is used for darkness in a few places in the New Testament that means something more than just Lights going out. <clears throat> I want to look at a few. Matthew 6, 23. We're focusing on the word darkness. Jesus is speaking here. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. There's that skatos word. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? All the same word there. Acts two nineteen and 20. Uh, Peter quoting Joel, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, which had to be fresh for them, just 40 plus days out from the crucifixion as Peter quoted this. Ephesians 5.8, For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And finally, Jude 13, speaking of those who are in the church, who are not saved, who are leading people astray that we're supposed to contend against. Wild waves of the sea, Jude calls them, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars. Now watch this. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now why am I pointing all this out? Why am I reading these verses which don't seem connected at all? Because this darkness, like I said, is not just an absence of the sun. What we're looking at in Matthew and then what we just looked at in all those verses. Some who think nothing of this event would be tempted to say that maybe this was just an eclipse or something like that. Which would be impossible, by the way, because at Passover time, the sun and the moon are on opposite sides of the earth. So physically, it would have been impossible for this to be an eclipse. Okay? So this was no eclipse. This darkness is a darkness from God. And how does God use darkness? If you see here in Jude, they're storing up the gloom of utter darkness, which has been reserved forever for them. If you go back to the the Acts passage where Peter is quoting Joel, the sun shall be turned to darkness And we used to be, in Ephesians, darkness. We were darkness. So darkness is literally a phrase that indicates judgment from God. God uses darkness as a form of judgment. We see it in the Old Testament over and over again, and we see it in these verses that we just looked at in the New Testament. Darkness is God passing judgment, how? By removing light. We were darkness. 
The darkness in us is great. The sun will be turned to darkness and the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever for those who are enemies of God. So this darkness in our passage today in Matthew is a sign of God's judgment. But, let me ask you this, who is God judging? Is He mad at the Romans? Is He angry with the chief priests? Is He angry with these thieves, these passers-by? And the answer to that is yes and no. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Here, in the midday darkness, God's judgment is coming upon the sins of those who would be His children. God, in this moment, is punishing the sins of His people in the person of Christ. Judgment has come and darkness has fallen and the wrath of God is on full display. And there aren't Romans fallen dead. There aren't chief priests and scribes fallen dead. There aren't passers-by dropping out. The thieves on the cross aren't dying. It's Jesus who is receiving the wrath of that judgment and the judgment of that wrath. And the wrath of God is on full display here in the noonday darkness. The wrath of God against my sins. And it's awful. And that awfulness is evidenced by the bloody body of Jesus and the darkness over the face of the land for three hours from noon until 3 p.m., the ninth hour. And then verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So after six hours on the cross, the last three in darkness, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Now let's look at that real quick. If you know, you know, and if you remember, you remember. We said that victims of crucifixion ended up dying by asphyxiation because they're not able to raise themselves up to breathe and mostly to exhale. That was the big problem was the ability to exhale. They lost the ability to exhale to get rid of the toxins in the air in their lungs. That's usually how people of crucifixion, uh, suffering crucifixion died. But here, after six hours on the cross, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. And that says something. You can't cry out with a loud voice if you can't breathe well. You ever tried to scream when you get the wind knocked out of you? You need something to drink? Here, dummy. Somehow, Jesus is able to not only breathe, but to be loud with what he's saying, which is pretty incredible. And what does he cry loudly? Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now Matthew gives us the literal words that Jesus used, which would have been in Aramaic, the Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That, that would have been in Aramaic. And then he gives us the translation of those words, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus would have said with a loud voice, literally coming out of his mouth, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. And that means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is loaded with meaning. Now think of Jesus here on the cross. 
as he hangs there in the dark, feeling in his person the wrath of God against the sins of his people. We surely have no context whatsoever as to the extent of the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual torture he was enduring. We have no shelf to put that on. And that leads to this proclamation right here at the end. Jesus cries out in anguish, not at nails or lacerations or hard wood on his back. No, his anguish lies in being forsaken by his God. Forsaken by his father. And that word forsaken means to abandon, desert, to leave behind. Now what does that mean? Has Jesus been left by his father? Has there been a separation in the unchangeable Godhead? We sing this line, the father turns his face away. In the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I want to ask you this morning, did God turn His face away from His only begotten Son? Is it even possible? It's not simple for sure. If God forsook Jesus, would that mean that there was a separation in the Godhead? One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit? It would seem so that there would be a separation. To forsake, desert, abandon, or leave someone behind would indicate separation for sure. I'm just not sure that that's even a remote possibility. One God, three persons, perfect unity, right? There can be no imperfection, no separation there, right? Well, keep in mind the work that Jesus is doing as he is being crucified. He's taking the sins of his people upon himself and absorbing God's wrath for those sins. And God is holy. Habakkuk 1.13, Habakkuk says to God, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So is God doing something here to turn his eyes from all this sin that is in and upon His Son? Seems so. And I don't understand the ins and outs of that. How that works. Was it just a turning away? Some people would say that God turned away from Christ in that moment so that He would never have to turn away from us. I like that. I don't know how it works. I don't know what's going on here. But this I do know. Now watch this. God's doing something here. But Jesus is doing something on purpose here as well. That line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is also the first line of Psalm 22. And the most common way that a psalm would be called to mind to be sung or to be referenced was to say the first line of it. Anybody ever been to a primitive Baptist church? They call out their songs by the first line. And that's what the Jewish people would do with the Psalms. They'd call out the first line of it. And the first line of Psalm 22, Melech read it last week. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, 1. And in Psalm 22, it has a lot of specific details that would play out in the crucifixion. I'm a worm and not a man. They mock me. I'm poured out like water. My tongue sticks to my jaws. Dogs encompass me. And on and on and on. But I want to read to you the end of that Psalm which you heard last week, 
But listen to verses 19 through 31 of the psalm that Jesus, I wholeheartedly believe, is referencing as he hangs there on the cross. This is the end of it. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come and come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise His name. Praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. Now that's a little bit more hopeful than my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, isn't it? And I believe that here on full display for all these Jews specifically passing by and for all of us later who would read these words, Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember the total Complete message of that psalm. As I hang here forsaken, rejected, smitten, as dogs surround me, as my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, as my bones are out of joint, remember that His righteousness will be proclaimed to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. That psalm takes quite a turn. This psalm that spends so much time focusing on the specific anguish of the suffering servant ends in triumph and praise. And I really believe that is very important. And that is why Jesus is saying these words specifically. Did God turn His face away? I don't know. I struggled with that and I've struggled with that for 20 years. And the suffering is real. Is real, not Israel. The suffering is true. It is happening. But, and, so is the triumph of the cross. And the end of Psalm 22 reminds us of that. Man is not winning here. God is being glorified here. And as much as Jesus may be suffering and struggling, maybe even to the point of being or feeling forsaken, He is also purposefully, I am sure, calling on God's people to praise God even in this moment of His anguish. Because that anguish is leading to the glory of God through the fulfillment of God's plan. So there's a lot in that loud cry of Jesus. And we may not get the totality of it. But those standing by didn't either. How do we know that? Verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling for Elijah. So Jesus had said, Eli, Eli, at the beginning of his cry. 
And some standing by heard it and said, this man is calling Elijah. Now we've said many times, several times in our journey through Matthew, that in their longing for the coming of the Messiah, these Jews would have expected Elijah, the prophet, to come before the Messiah as a forerunner, which is referenced in Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you, God says, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So any reference to or call for Elijah would be seen as significant. And if you remember when we talked about the Last Supper there, We said that the Jews would leave an open seat for Elijah just in case he showed up because they were expecting him to show up. So here, somebody in the crowd goes, he's calling for Elijah. So they may think that all of this is leading up to a God moment. I mean, it's been dark for three hours. Something's going on. And maybe that has Messiah bringing implications, they think. And so they hear Eli, Eli, and they think Jesus is calling for Elijah. So it perks their ears up. And then verse 48, And one of them, one of the bystanders at once, ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. So they want to make sure they're hearing Jesus right. They want to help him clear his palate, it would seem. They sit in niceness. They're like, hey, let's see what happens. This is, this is pretty cool. Maybe Elijah's coming. So one of them takes a sponge and fills it with sour wine. Some versions say wine vinegar. And they take that sponge and they stick it on the end of a reed and they shove it up in Jesus' face in order to give him a drink. And again, they just want to see, you talking about Elijah? You calling for Elijah? Other people have other ideas about what's going on. But the others said, wait, wait, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. They're like, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah's coming. So they just want to hang out and see if Elijah shows up. They don't care about Jesus. They just want to see a possible show, which is usually what the crowd is into, by the way. But as it turns out, the show's over. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. There would be no Elijah sighting today. It's too late for that. Jesus told us back earlier in Matthew that Elijah had come and they'd missed him. And that Elijah was in the form of John the Baptist. He was the forerunner of the Messiah who prepared the way. So, no, Elijah doesn't show up here. Jesus cries out again with a loud voice again. And Matthew doesn't tell us what he said. We'll look at that later. But after crying out with another loud voice, Matthew says that Jesus, notice this, yielded up his spirit. Now, that's an awfully important clause there, much more important than Santa. Jesus yielded up his spirit. It doesn't say that Jesus expired. It doesn't say that Jesus stopped breathing or that his heart or brain ceased to function, which is how we would define death, right? It says that he yielded up his spirit. He let his spirit Leave his body. Who did that? He did that. Who killed Jesus? Nobody. Nobody killed Jesus. We looked at uh, John 10 last week where he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Here, Jesus laid down his life. 
He yielded up His Spirit. The sinless, perfect Son of God, having received the full vent of God's anger against the sins of the redeemed, sent His Spirit out of His body, ending His life. You don't have the power to do that. Jesus said, I have authority that I received from the Father to do this very thing. So Jesus said, Spirit, get. And Jesus died. Ending his physical life at this moment. Jesus is dead. And it's because Jesus said so. The Lord of creation, the spotless Lamb of God, has come to the end of his earthly life to this point. So he ceases striving and he dies. Jesus, in verse 50, is dead. So now what? Oh, a lot. Look at verse 51. And I want to say, look at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Whoa, what's going on here? This is a wow moment. As Jesus dies, Matthew records and behold. And we've seen this so many times in Matthew. It means stop and pay attention. Focus on this and ponder it for a bit. And behold what? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now what's that talking about? This curtain, this veil, was the veil separating the most holy place from the common area all around it. In the tabernacle back in Exodus, Moses' days, and then up through the first temple times, that holy place called the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant was where the presence of God was seated upon what they called the mercy seat. The very presence of God was seated there. And no one except the high priest once a year could go into the most holy place. And that once a year trip for the high priest was to sprinkle blood for the atonement of the sins of the people. And legend says that they tied a rope around his ankle and he wore bells just in case he died from his impurity while in there. If he died, they could just pull him out by the rope. If the tinkling stops, yank him out, he's dead. Because he was walking into the presence of God. And God is holy and we're not. And we could literally die from stepping into the presence of God as unholy people. So after Jesus dies, it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You're like, okay, well, that's kind of neat. This curtain in Herod's temple at that time was 80 feet high. 80 feet high. And all of a sudden, as Jesus dies, it's torn from top to bottom. And you see that? From top to bottom. Now who do you figure was up 80 feet in the air to start ripping this joker? It wasn't a man. They didn't have no boom lift. They have no bucket truck to lift them up there. So from top to bottom... This curtain separating, which again, the presence of God wasn't in this temple. 
Ezekiel had seen the vision of the glory departing the temple in Israel, and then they were overtaken and taken into um, captivity by the Babylonians. So the glory had departed that temple, the original temple, back years ago. And once it was rebuilt, they never saw the glory of the Lord descend upon this temple. But there was a sign here. God tore that temple, uh, tore that uh, curtain from top to bottom in the temple in the most holy place. God did this. Why? God is showing that access into His presence is no longer restricted to one man once a year. No! All of that sprinkling of blood for those thousands of years was now fulfilled. The type was no longer needed because it was all pointing to the death of Jesus. And God is showing that access into His presence is not only not just once a year, God is saying to His people whose sins are now taken out of the way, Come into my presence. No more separation. No more prohibition. No more limiting me to a spot on the earth. I'm welcoming my children into my presence where I am. After thousands of years of no, you can't. God is finally saying, yes, you can. But it wasn't just the curtain in the temple. Matthew also says the earth shook and the rocks were split. There's a massive earthquake, obviously, as the mighty work of God concluded through the death of Christ. This quaking, this splitting of the rocks was a sign of the power of God moving through first century Palestine here at this defining moment of history. And nobody who was around could deny that something was going on. It's been dark for three hours in the afternoon. Now there's this earthquake and the rocks are splitting. And if they did question what was going on, it got even crazier. Verse 52 The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Imagine that newsflash coming across your ticker. Newsflash, dead people are coming out of the tombs. During the earthquake, tombs opened up, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, meaning died, were raised. There was an outbreak of supernatural life. And it was like nothing anybody had ever seen before. God was showing up and blowing up all over the place. In the temple, in the tombs, there at the foot of the cross, in where the sun is, where the rocks are. God's just showing himself. And it continued for a while. Verse 53. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection... They went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now verses 52 and 53 are separated by comma comma in our ESV. But these are two thoughts, not one. After the earthquake, tombs opened and saints were raised. So that's after the earthquake there at Jesus' death. And then here in verse 53, a time reference is made to things happening after Jesus' resurrection. After verse 52 happened at the crucifixion, and after 53 happened after Jesus' resurrection, we start to see dead people coming alive and showing themselves. So it seems like for a period of three days, from the crucifixion to the resurrection, dead people were showing up all over the area. (laughs) Grandma's coming for dinner. (laughs) Grandma's dead. Not anymore. (laughs) She's outside, man. I saw her. She asked what was for dinner. I don't know that that's what happened. But for three days, dead people are showing up alive. 
And I wonder if after a period of three days, people are like, well, this is the new normal. Dead people are just coming alive. Things were definitely changing. Things had definitely changed, that's for sure. And we know of at least some guys who were impressed. Verse 54, our last verse for the day. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, awe, and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, if you'll remember in last week's message from the passage there, after nailing Jesus to the cross, the Roman soldiers were said to have sat down and kept watch over him there. Well, that watching ended up being more of an assignment than they expected it to be. They'd been sitting in darkness for three hours now, half of the six hours that they'd been sitting there since they crucified him. Then all this loud voice crying out stuff happened, and then this rock-splitting earthquake happened. I don't think they knew what was going on in the temple with the curtain as they sat there at the cross. And verse 54 then says that there was a Roman centurion there at the cross. Now, a centurion commanded how many soldiers? Centur... hundred. So this guy was a commander of a hundred Roman soldiers... And he's tasked with keeping dead men on their crosses, basically. Dying men on their crosses. To watch over these these dying men, these three men. Well, he and those with him see the darkness. They see and feel the earthquake. They're watching rocks split apart. And it says that they were filled with awe. That translates that they were extremely afraid. This centurion and these soldiers were shaking in their sandals. And you would have been too. But their conclusion serves as our conclusion for the day as well. Truly, this was the son of a God? One of our gods? Truly, this was the son of God. Now that's quite a conclusion. If you remember back leading up to Jesus actually being crucified, 600 Roman soldiers had spent the early morning beating and mocking Jesus. Put a purple robe on him, a crown of thorns on his head, and gave him a reed for a scepter, and then they beat him with that reed, and they spit on him, and they made fun of him saying, Oh, it's the king of the Jews. Well, these guys here at the cross, and we said last week that John MacArthur had pointed out it must have been four of them, since they divided Jesus' five garments up between them, casting lots for the one-piece inner garment, these four guys, we're going to assume, have a divine revelation. They have a come-to-Jesus meeting, literally there at the foot of the cross. And their conclusion, after it all, is that Jesus truly was the Son of God. It says, they. Truly. This was the Son of God. Commentator Stuart Weber describes it this way, quote, The centurion was the Roman officer in charge of the soldiers guarding Jesus and the two robbers. The spectacular signs of the earthquake and all that had happened had their intended effect on the centurion as well as the other soldiers who were with him. They became frightened and expressed their recognition that the words of the mockers were true. Surely, truly, he was the Son of God. He goes on to say this, Those pagan soldiers knew little of the Jewish faith. They probably did not realize the scriptural implications of the titles thrown at Jesus when the observers taunted him, but they knew what a God was 
And they knew that the Jews believed in a single all-powerful God. They also knew the implications of a son of God enough to proclaim the title with awe at the supernatural wonders they saw at the death of Jesus. He concludes by saying this, One of Matthew's themes was Jesus' recognition by Gentiles. Thus, the men he recorded as proclaiming the true identity of the Messiah at the turning point of all history were pagan Roman soldiers. End of quote. Whether or not the centurion and those with him knew the full implications of this confession that they were making, their confession is a fitting end to the passage that describes the death of Jesus. Listen, even in his dying, Jesus' power and glory were on full display. Surely, this man was and is the Son of God. Now that is a death worthy of the man who died it. But what conclusion have you reached this morning? Is Jesus the Son of God? If he is, it has implications. Serious, huge, eternal implications. And it's not included in this passage, but remember, he doesn't stay dead. He comes back to life in three days. He shows himself alive to over 500 people. Maybe hangs out with some of these guys that have come back from the grave. Say, hey, y'all. Remember us dead people? And then he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father today. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Well, I don't believe that, you may say. You say that to your peril. These Roman soldiers said, truly, this man is the Son of God. And if he is, what are the implications for us? We're going to look at application through three glorious A's. Absence, atonement, and access. And I'm pretty doggone excited about these application points. First application point is absence. Listen to me. Jesus was a real man who walked in a real body at a real time in history. For 33 plus years, Jesus, who had been born of the Virgin Mary, lived a real life. And as such, he really did die. This wasn't some mirage. This wasn't some sleight of hand by God. I'll make it look like he's dead. Woo! And you play real good, Jesus. Play your part well. And when they put you in the tomb, I'll wake you back up or you'll swoon because of the coldness of the tomb. That's a theory. (laughs) Yeah, put that on and see how long it covers you. Jesus died. Okay, what's the application point for us? Listen, Jesus' spirit left his body, albeit at his command... So then how does that affect us? Listen, there is nothing inconsequential through this process of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, revelation, and ascension and reigning over God. There's no insignificant part of it, and His death is significant. It's important. Watch this. How important is it? We could spend six weeks on these 11 verses. We won't. Romans 6, 1 through 11. 
And that should excite you when I say that, that passage. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly... Be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know as believers, as followers of this Messiah, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. That's a different message. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also, here's the application point, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus died so that we could be dead to sin. We shared the death that He died on the cross. Everything that happened on the cross, we shared in. It was my sins that held Him there until it was accomplished. And therefore, listen church, listen believers, we died with Him. Our sinful selves died with Him. So that the body of sin might no longer have dominion over us. Oh yes, we still have sin in our mortal bodies and we will until we see Jesus face to face, but we don't have to walk according to the law of the flesh because we have died with Christ to the power, listen, to the power of sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Sin no longer has dominion over me because Jesus died. And we shared in that death with Him. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been The good news of the gospel is not that just that the debt for your sins has been paid. It's that you're dead to sin because Jesus died. You're like, I don't know, man. I still feel it. I don't know, man. I I don't feel dead to it. And the good news is we died with Christ. We died to sin with Christ and we have been raised to new life so that we can overcome this sin that we are dead to, that our flesh lies to us about and says still has power over us. It does not. The power of sin has been broken in your life by the death of Christ. His death is our death. Since He died, so did we. And that death, listen to me, separated us from our sins. 
the body of Christ broken, the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, we have died to sin. Live like it, Christian. Tell God he's lying. Don't tell God it's not true in your life. Ask God how it can be realized in your life. Because it's true. Jesus died. His spirit was absent from his body. And he stayed dead for three days. And we'll leave it there right now. And that's good news. The death of Christ is good news because it means that you have died to sin in him and with him. But that ain't all. Absence, atonement. Woo! Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of his people. All of you, all of us, all of we, from Adam until the last man, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. You are a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you commit sins. And because you commit sins and because you are a sinner, you are separated from the presence of God. An unterrible veil stands between you and God if you are still in your sins. But if you have trusted Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection... Ascension and glorification for the forgiveness of your sins. Listen, our sins have been atoned for. They've been paid for with no debt left on the ledger for them. I'm getting there. Matthew didn't say what Jesus cried out there at the end. But John does. John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Whoa! It is finished! He didn't say the woo part, I did. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, whoa. A lot of y'all will know this, some of you may not. That phrase, it is finished, is the Greek word tetelestai. And that's an accounting term. And it means paid in full. Fully accomplished, fully perfected. It's what they would stamp on documents that the last payment had been made on. Now translate that into your sins. We owed a debt that was insurmountable for us. That we could never pay. A debt caused by our sins. And Jesus, in his death, paid that debt off for us. So that God is satisfied fully, leaving no debt, no guilt, no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To Tetelestai, paid in full, no outstanding debt to be paid. It has been accomplished. In Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. Every single one of them. Because He bore the wrath of God upon His own body for my sins. God took the sins of His people and pushed them into Christ and poured out His wrath 
upon those sins in the person of His Holy Son. Listen to me, Christian. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This worked and is still working and will continue to work all throughout eternity. You know what's not going to be brought up in heaven, Christian? Your sins. You know what God doesn't bring up today, Christian? Your sins. He'll discipline you for for godliness sake. He hates sin. And what the atonement does, it turns our sin into an opportunity to worship God. I go to God with my sin that I just committed and I confess my sin, 1 John 1, 9, and God is faithful and just to forgive me that sin. He's already forgiven my sin. It's paid in full to telestai and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness so that when I bring God my sin, it's not, oh God, I'm a jerk, I'm an idiot, oh, I can't believe I did it again. You must be so disappointed in me. No, no, no. I bring my sin to God. I say, God, this is sin. I agree with you, this is sin. And he says, I know, it's paid in full. And I say, God, thank you for forgiving me through the righteous, perfect blood of Jesus Christ. My sin leads me to worship God because of the atonement. Your sin's not okay. My sin's not okay. It's still sin. It's still an affront to a holy God. And God says, paid for, covered, completed, no condemnation ever because of the effectiveness of the sacrifice of Christ to purchase my atonement, to purchase your atonement. Oh, that we would realize that. It is finished. Absence, atonement, and finally access. Oh, Christian, we have unhindered access into the very presence of God today. Struggling, suffering, can't sleep, ringing ears, hungry, upset, somebody cut out in front of you in traffic. Cancer diagnosis. We're affected by it all. We still live in a fallen, sinful world. And in the midst of it, we have unhindered, unfiltered access to the very presence of God Almighty Himself for the help and joy and strength that we need to persevere. Um, I don't remember exactly what it said. Bob read at the beginning, to treat your time in exile, Peter said, this way, that my Father has not left me or forsaken me, He can't because I'm one with Christ now. And there in the person of Christ, I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places with unfiltered, uninhibited, unprohibited access to the very presence of God. Watch this. For you have not come, believer, to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. This was at the Exodus when God was descending on the mountain. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but 
You believer, you Christian, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now that's what I call access. I got backstage passes. All access. That means if you've been to a concert and had backstage passes, all access, that means I can go backstage during the, during the concert, I, where they're eating back there. I can meet the people, shake their hands, go, hey, what's up? Mm, access, access. We've been given access into the very presence of God and to Jesus, who is the mediator of this new covenant. And as we look at him, we look upon the sprinkled blood that paid the penalty for our sins and gave us that excess so that God would be glorified and we would be called righteous as a result of the righteousness of Christ. At the end of all things, the Spirit and the Bride in Revelation 22 say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Since the fall in Eden, for thousands of years, that veil said, No, you can't. Now torn, God says, Yes, you can. Come, sinner. Receive forgiveness for your sins. Receive access into the very presence of God. Free access into the presence of the holy God because you have been made holy. Because you have placed your faith in the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus Christ. Unhindered access into the very presence of God. And there is nothing greater in the universe. Maybe you're there today. You need to praise God for the access that you have into the presence of God. Maybe you are kept out. You are outside in outer darkness, separated from God because of your sins. If you are, call out to the real man Jesus Christ who died a real death upon a real Roman cross, whose spirit left his body, so that your sins could be atoned for, so that you could have access into the very presence of God. Place your faith in Him and trust Him to do what we see that He did today, which is die to pay the penalty for your sins. Let's pray. Father, You have done what we could never do. In a real historical setting, in the real body of a real Jesus, You poured out your wrath upon my sins. Oh, I I don't deserve that. I could never earn it. But you love to show us your grace. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict us all of our sins and may we see the sufficiency of the death of Christ to cause us to be dead to those sins that we might walk in newness of life. Father, call life out of death here this morning. Holy Spirit, regenerate dead people this morning. May they come out of their tombs this morning. 
We trust you to do it, God, because we can't. And we know that you can because we've seen you do it. And your word says that you will. So we honor you and give glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? We're not going to leave him in the grave this morning. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great day.